there we go. <laughs> Good evening. Good evening, one and all. So thank you all for joining me. We're about to go on a bit of a journey. My intention is to have three lectures over the next three weeks on Jesus Christ. So as we come up to Christmas, I like to talk a little bit about the Christ and his powerful message of renunciation, particularly. And so it's going to be a three-part lecture series. This is the first of three, mother willing. We'll have three lectures and each one will be on a different area in the Christ's life and teaching. So this one, I think we're going to call it something like Christ's message of renunciation, but maybe something a little more clickbaity is uh, five reasons you should renounce the world right now and devote your entire life to God. Something like that. So that's what this lecture is going to be about. Um, next week, we'll talk about the yoga of Christ. Like what exactly did the Christ practice and exactly what practice did he encourage us to do? So we'll talk a little bit about the practice of prayer. Then in the third lecture, I think that will be just around Christmas time. We'll have a conversation about the art of prayer. What is it to pray? What exactly is prayer? And what's the overlap between prayer and meditation? And you know, what's the kind of intersection between bhakti, jnana, raja yoga? for those of you who are familiar with that terminology. So that will be the third of three lectures. Mother willing, we'll be able to have all three of them. And uh, <laughs> this is a particularly exciting time of the year for me because as we come up to Christmas, I particularly enjoy talking about the Christ. <laughs> However, I should uh, make a few disclaimers first regarding tonight's conversation. So this is what I, what I intend to do. I want to make a case for renunciation in three ways. I want to argue that renunciation is the only correct philosophical choice in three ways. One, I'm going to argue from the point of view of axiology, or maybe I guess you could say um, aesthetics. So axiology is the type of philosophy that's interested in values, in ethics, in meaning. You know, it's an inquiry into what makes life worth living. So included in axiological philosophy is ethics, you know, how to be a good person. Also included in that is aesthetics, what makes something beautiful. And most of all, included in it is teleology, meaning what am I here for? What's the purpose of my life? So that's axiological. So that's the first way in which I want to have this conversation about renunciation. I'm going to make an axiological case for renunciation and why you should do it right now. Okay, then from there, I'd like to make an epistemological case. So where axiology is the study of value, meaning, and beauty, epistemology is the study of how it is that we know what we know. So I claim to know that I am a certain person called Nish living in a world. I'm currently in Los Angeles. So I claim to know these things, but can I really actually say that I know these things or do I just assume these things? And when I inquire into what it is I actually know, I'd like to show you that the outcome, the conclusion, the necessary conclusion is renunciation. Renunciation is an inevitable conclusion in the logical quest of epistemology. So that's the second way in which we'll have this discussion. And the third way in which we'll have this discussion is from the point of view of metaphysics. So metaphysically, I'm going to make the case that I am not the sort of thing that can enjoy anything short of God. And therefore, I should give up everything that does not pertain to my true nature. So metaphysics, as you know, is a quest for truth in the sense of what is being, existentialism, uh, not, not, not quite existentialism, but what exists or ontological kind of inquiry, like what's real, you know, what exactly is real. And once we have that discussion, as we tend to do often, we'll see that renunciation is kind of the obvious choice, given that I am not the sort of thing that can enjoy anything short of God, as I said. Okay, so um, if you've been following, you'll notice epistemology Oh, sorry, axiology, epistemology, and metaphysics. That, that should sound kind of familiar, right? Because axiology is ananda, epistemology is chid, and metaphysics is sat. 
So Satchit Ananda, you know, metaphysics, Sat, being, the philosophy of existence and being. Chit, consciousness, the philosophy of how we know what we know, knowing, epistemology. And finally, Ananda, axiology, the, 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 the meaning and value of life that we're all trying to attain, you know. So that's three ways in which I'd like to have this discussion. Now, of course, almost all the time we talk about renunciation. I'm like in some way a fanatic about renunciation. So this is just another angle in which we're going to have a conversation that I think we've had a lot before together. Now, um, I want to frame it in this way. Five reasons why you should renounce. And thus far, I've only spoken of three things. I want to give you an axiological reason to renounce. I want to give you an epistemological reason to renounce. And I want to give you a metaphysical reason to renounce. But beyond that, I also want to appeal to the common teachings of the Christ, the Buddha, Krishna, and Ramakrishna. And I want to make the case that like all these different figures throughout our spiritual history here on uh, earth, all of them have made a centerpiece of renunciation in their life and, and teachings. That cannot be without meaning. There must be some reason why renunciation features so heavily as a centerpiece in the teaching of not one, but four of these great world teachers. Now, here I'd like to follow after Christopher Isherwood and not claim that these beings are avatars. Of course, my personal predisposition is I'm inclined to believe the claims of these people's disciples, that they are indeed avatars, that there is something special to Krishna, something special to Buddha and Christ and Ramakrishna that is not really there in most of the masters and saints. You know, like there's something about these four figures that make them markedly and categorically different from any of the other great spiritual beings that we've had the good fortune to like know about in the course of our civilizations, you know? So I'm going to claim that these four beings, I don't want to say that they're avatars, you know, maybe that word is too charged with meaning. What does that even mean for the Christ to be an incarnation of God? I don't want to call them saints or mystics that might undermine and understate the value of these four figures in spiritual history. So instead, let's just follow after Christopher Isherwood and call them phenomena. These four beings, Krishna, um, Buddha, Jesus, Ramakrishna, are just phenomena, unlike anything else. They're, they're spiritual events that have happened in the course of our civilizations that demand our attention because they have, each of them in the course of their lives, not only exemplified the highest spirituality, but have also left behind a legacy that is the most far-reaching and most productive of all the world traditions. So even today, the influence of Buddhism can be felt. It originated in India, like something like 2,500 years ago. And yet, it's flowered into something that has far exceeded what it was in the beginning and has created a swath of untold millions, millions of enlightened beings just within that one tradition. Then Christianity, it too has expanded so many different orders, Franciscan, Dominican, uh, all these different orders have expanded and it too features a vast array of liberated beings, St. Francis, one of my favorite movies of all time is Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. So around this time of year, I like to watch it. It's a movie about St. Francis and Donovan does the soundtrack. So all the, all the 60s music listeners in the room will enjoy it. See, Chandraji will like it. So this is the time of year where we can watch The Last Temptation of Christ or The Passion of Christ or, yeah, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. Exactly. So anyway, uh, St. Francis. Then, I mean, just just name one. There's so many wonderful saints, but St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, all of these great spiritual masters, Teresa of Avila, and we've got um, St. John of the Cross, the Spanish mystic. And, and uh, you know, there's no end to the productivity of the Christian tradition in creating masters, mystics of the highest order. Then let's take a look uh, at, at Krishna. You know, so Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita teaches something that is the very essence of all the kind of, let's say, Vedic 
traditions that have come out of India since the Upanishadic time. So we can argue that the Gita is the essence of the Upanishads as taught by Krishna. And it has had such an effect on not only Hinduism, but on Buddhism and Jainism. And it continues to create masters all over the world. And of course, Sri Ramakrishna, who is kind of like the meeting place of all of these great avatars. In him, you find Buddhistic attitudes, Christian attitudes, you find Upanishadic attitudes, like all of these blended together in the life of like a great universalist in Sri Ramakrishna. And his influence, though, you know, he's quite close to us, historically speaking, he only came around like 150 or so years ago. Um, his influence is slowly being felt more and more as the work of Swami Vivekananda reaches more and more people all around the world. So anyway, in any case, whatever these beings might be, call them avatars, call them mystics, call them saints, one cannot deny that they're at least interesting. And the claim that I want to make first and foremost is this. If all of them are special in some way, if they're all in a league or a class of their own, it must be noted that they all taught as a front piece, as a centerpiece, renunciation. For all of them, renunciation was very, very important. In fact, Sri Ramakrishna used to say about the Gita that if you just repeat the Gita, the word Gita 10 times, it would turn into Tyaga. Gita, 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 but Tyaga. So Tyaga means literally renunciation in Sanskrit. So Gita backwards is Tyaga. And he used to say often, Sri Ramakrishna would say that the essence of the Gita is that word Tyaga renunciation. So the essence of the Gita is renunciation. Isn't that exciting? Then the Buddha, look at the Buddha. This was a man who walked all over India, telling them to throw aside their Vedas and their rituals and all manner of things, and just come and live an austere monastic life in the forest hermitage, practicing meditation all day and inquiring into the void nature of body-mind world. So <laughs> there couldn't be a deeper renunciation than the Buddha's renunciation of saying there is nothing even to renounce because everything is void. Everything is impermanent. It's not even here to throw away because it was never here in the first place to grasp. So the Buddha not only taught renunciation, but he exemplified it. In his very life, he was the monk par excellence. He wandered India owning nothing but a begging bowl and perhaps ochre robes. You know, in the inception of Buddhism, they were not actually seen as different from other Upanishadic, like Vedic monks, you know. Buddhism hadn't yet become its own sect yet. It was still kind of seen as a, another monastic tradition within India, but it was at its core a monastic tradition. It encouraged people to renounce the world. And of course, there were many lay devotees as well, but at its kind of heart, it was a monastic tradition that appealed to the monastic inclinations in people to leave behind everything that wasn't spiritual life and devote themselves full-time to the practice and actualization of spirituality. So Buddhism, as you can see, is a deeply like renunciant uh, path. And now to say nothing of the Christ, have you seen such absorption in God and such wholehearted renunciation? Now the Christ, he took renunciation to a whole new level because it wasn't now just about not doing worldly things. It was about not thinking worldly things. He whosoever looketh upon a woman has committed adultery in his mind. So for the Christ, it was more important to renounce lust internally. You cannot worship God and mammon as well. You cannot serve two masters. So you have to realize that money Mammon, that greed is antithetical to God. So when one looks at the Sermon of the Mount, you realize, oh my God, the Christ is inviting you to renounce all greed, to renounce all lust, but also, and this is perhaps even more of a front to us, to renounce all anger, judgment, petty jealousies and hatreds, you know, to renounce all manner of withholding from our brothers and sisters, to give them the coat and the shirt and turn the cheek and go with them two miles when they only asked for one, you know, and refuse to retaliate if they took your eye. Like the level of renunciation that Christ is calling for is beyond compare, okay? But, but they all stressed it. 
Krishna in the Gita, Buddha in his life and teachings in the Tripitaka, uh, 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 Jesus in his teachings in, in, in the New Testament. And of course, Sri Ramakrishna, what was he if not a paragon of renunciation? Ma Sharada, who is a spiritual consort of Sri Ramakrishna, and in many ways, his Shakti and his kind of messenger in the world next to Swami Vivekananda. You can see that she, when she talks about Sri Ramakrishna, she says the purpose of his avatar, his, his kind of incarnation, the purpose of his coming is to teach above all renunciation. Yes, of course, the oneness of all existence, non-duality. Yes, of course, um, the harmony of all religions, as many faiths, as many paths to God. Yes, of course, the motherhood of God, you know, but more than any of that, Maharada thinks renunciation is the unique trademark of Sri Ramakrishna. And always he would say the only two obstacles to spiritual life is Kamini Kanchan, women and gold, because he would speak to male disciples. And just the other day at the temple, we could see how uh, people, um, we all have this predisposition of trying to kind of delude ourselves to think that religion is not as demanding as it is. So we like to think, okay, lust and greed is not actually about like sex, right? Like it's just about like craving, right? And Sri Ramakrishna, he knew, I guess, that we would all have this tendency to kind of twist the words and try to get away with our worldliness. So he gave no kind of ambiguity there. Women in gold. He was talking about the sex instinct and he was saying, renounce that. Uh, just renounce the sex instinct. And he was talking about gold. Renounce greed and covetousness. He wasn't saying, you know, karma or um, lobha, these internal states that can be kind of ambiguous, that can be explained away. No, he spoke directly to the objects to which those states often are expressed women and gold. And he spoke that to men disciples, to female disciples, he would say the same thing. You know, it was obviously in the heteronormative sense, men and gold. But he was saying, you know, give up the sex instinct, give up your acquisitiveness. There's nothing short of that that can be called spirituality. It's intense. And I've heard from people that when they read, read the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, in some sense, they get intimidated by how elevated it is in terms of like, it's, it's spiritual power. It's asking something of us that most people uh, perhaps are not willing to give that are kind of scared of even considering. <laughs> what do you mean? Give up sex. <laughs> it's like the, the funnest thing I know in my life. <laughs> most of us might say, um, but you know, I, it's fortunate that those of you who are here today, um, I think it's just, I've known you for a long time now, and this is kind of like core Sangha. And those of you who are here, um, are more than happy to hear about spirituality at this level, though it can sometimes be an affront to our conditioning. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm excited to have this conversation with no less than you, than all of you who are, you know, um, sincere spiritual aspirants that ought to be exposed to the very highest as expounded by the Christ, by Buddha, by Krishna, by Sri Ramakrishna. So today I hope to have something like that of a conversation about the very highest teaching, renunciation. I would even say renunciation is the essence of all religion, of all spirituality. And it's, I would argue, the secret of happiness, which sounds counterintuitive at first, but we will never be happy, I'm going to argue, until we have renounced completely. Um, so I'm just going to make this claim here at the top of the lecture that total happiness and total fulfillment in life is synonymous with total uncompromising renunciation. Okay. So that's why I like talking about the Christ, because I think in the life and times of the Christ, you see that renunciation in all of the different episodes in the Christ Lila, but you also see the support of that renunciation. You see why it was easy for the Christ to walk away from everything. It was easy for him to renounce because he was wholly absorbed in God. 
So you see, I think in the Christ's life and Sri Ramakrishna's life, this kind of absorption in something so deep, something so fulfilling that renunciation isn't even a choice. It's an inadvertent kind of natural consequence, just like the flower would fall off of a tree when a fruit comes. Just like that, the love of God itself naturally means renunciation. So you see in the life of the Christ that renunciation is not something you do. It's something that happens to you as a result of falling so deeply in love with God. The, the result of becoming absorbed in God is naturally renunciation. It's not like you have to practice renunciation. You just have to love God. And in loving God, the world falls away of its own accord. Sri Ramakrishna would often say, every step you take to the West is one step away from the East. Every step you take to Banaras, which is a holy city in India, is one step away from your hometown, presuming you didn't live in Banaras. So the idea is, you don't have to try to get away from your hometown. You just have to go to Banaras. You don't have to try to get away from the East. You just have to go towards West. In other words, you don't have to overcome lust. You just have to love God and lust will fall away. You never have to worry about greed. You just have to love God and greed will fall away. So renunciation sounds so scary when it's seen in the point of view of like, this is something I have to do. Or if, if it's seen from a moralistic or cultural point of view, then it becomes offensive and antiquated. That's why I want to have a philosophical, not a cultural discussion about renunciation. I want to talk axiologically, epistemologically, and metaphysically, not culturally and not morally. Right? I don't want to make any moral points about lust and greed. I want to make philosophical points and, and, and uh, axiological points about those things. Okay, So when seen from the point of view of like culture and morality and shoulds and shouldn'ts, then renunciation becomes really like intimidating. But when seen from the lens of the Christ who just loved God with all of his heart, then renunciation can be understood differently as a natural byproduct of being wholly, wholly absorbed in God. Now, Another reason I like to talk about the Christ is because um, you can compare him to the Buddha and see that they were literally the same person expressing things in very interesting uh, ways. Because the Christ, he loved God, right? The Buddha, he did not at least profess a belief in God. So he's an atheist at worst and agnostic at best. So he kind of tossed aside the Vedas and abstract notions of God. Not for the Buddha were these notions of the divine in the sky, you know? He was not talking about his father or anything. But have you seen a more devoted person in history than the Buddha? He spent his whole life serving God in the best place to serve God, in the hearts of his brothers and sisters. He didn't stop with humans. He loved animals and he loved plants. There was no one in this world who was a greater bhakta, I would argue, than the Buddha. Although he didn't profess a belief in God. So I say, who cares about God? I don't care about God. Maybe God's in some abstract heaven or in some Vedas or in some temple. Burn it all. I don't care. Because God is in the hearts and, 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 and minds of our brothers and sisters. God is other people. God is animals. God is plants. God is this world. So you don't even need to profess a belief in God or have any kind of theology. You could be the Buddha and be just as absorbed in God, just as God intoxicated as the Christ was, without ever once professing a belief in God. You know, if you've ever read Shanti Deva's Bodhicharya Vatara, the Bodhisattva's Guide to, the, to, to, to Life, you'll see it's a tremendously devotional text. And it's a Buddhist piece of literature. So a lot of people, I think, just yesterday I was hearing, you know, a kind of um, sentiment that Buddhists aren't devotional because they're like jnanis. No, no, no. That's hardly true. Buddhists are incredibly devotional. They're among the most devotional uh, because God is God. And God is not what is spoken of in books or in temples or anything like that. God is something more. Okay. And in saying that, another thing I have to say is this is usually the most controversial time uh, of the year for me, because this is the time when many people will be sending me emails being asked to take, be taken off the mailing list. And this is when I'll get very many angry comments on the discord because two groups of people don't like it. When I have this conversation, the Christians, 
don't like it when I talk about Jesus because you're like, why does he love Jesus so much? That's so weird. Isn't he like some kind of weird tantrika, mother worshiping guy, you know? Because in, in the Bible, it says in the English translation of the Bible, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, none of these people really necessarily read the Greek or have read New Testament in its original language, um, but they just assume that what that statement means is unless you follow Jesus, you will never have the truth, the way, and the life. So Jesus, exclusively the guy, Jesus, is the truth, the way, and the life, right? So they believe that if you're not Christian, then you have no access to spirituality. So spirituality alone can be found in the Bible. So then when I, outside of the Bible, professing a belief in all things, um, love the Christ, they'll be like, this is weird because you have to accept the Christ exclusively, you know, so that the Christians get a bit upset. The Hindus get even more upset. You know why? Because they think I'm now uh, colonized. So you'll see like a lot of people come to our discord. You know what they want? They want a Hindu space. In other words, they want like a political group that identifies as Hindu or as Indian. They're very disappointed when I don't identify as either of those things. <laughs> you know, I am not at all interested in being Hindu. I'm sorry. I'm just not because I'm interested in God and God is a little bit vaster than your Hinduism. God is a little bit vaster than your Bible. God as the infinite cannot be crammed into this or that religion, however broad that religion might be. I mean, Hinduism, as far as things go, is one of the broadest, most inclusive traditions. But even then, you know, God is a bit wider than that. And it includes the Abrahamic faith, which I'm afraid a lot of Indians have a problem with, <laughs> given our history, I guess. So uh, you'll notice sometimes on the Discord, people come here and they're a bit upset that we're not really interested in having conversations about like political oppression of Hindus all over the world. You know, it's, it's true. Hindus are being oppressed all over the world, but so is everybody else. I mean, this, as the Buddha argued, is the, the realm of oppression. <laughs> so when I start talking about the Christ, usually people are like, okay, this is, this is a bit weird. <laughs> So I also like this time of the year because of how, you know, um, important it is for all of us in whatever tradition we find ourselves in to realize that God is vaster than the book in which we discovered her in. You know? So that's why I think for the Hindus who are interested in seeing things from the realm of like Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda and seeing things from the realm of like the Gita and the lens of like the Upanishads have to understand that those truths that were expressed in those texts are equally expressed in Buddhism, in Jainism, in, in Christianity, in Judaism, etc. So that's why it's also nice to talk about the Christ. So I hope thus far in the lecture, you can see there is something common to all of these people. And over the next three lectures, I hope to tease it out to the best of our ability, God willing. So let's start. First point. <laughs> Thank you, Dudu. First point. Now, um, axiologically, why renunciation is, and this is the first of five reasons, right? Why renunciation is valuable. Um, and the first reason is this, axiologically, renunciation will be the natural conclusion of carefully investigating the experiences we've had in our life thus far and asking the very honest question of, um, am I fulfilled? So Swami Vivekananda, Swami Medanandaji actually quoted this yesterday. And I, I was very inspired and moved to share it also. Swami Vivekananda, he, he said famously, the purpose of life is not enjoyment. The purpose of life is education through experience, which is an incredibly tantric statement. Basically, he's saying the ends cannot be enjoyment, but enjoyment can be the means. In other words, he's not making a moralistic or cultural point against enjoyment. He's only saying, do what you would do, enjoy your life in whatever way you know how, but then carefully investigate those experiences and ask if they actually brought to you what you hoped that they would. In other words, ask if you actually got out of that experience what you wanted. 
So, okay, you're horny. And now you think, I want to feel complete in having the experience of an orgasm with someone. Okay, you have that kind of animal urge to go out and consummate a sexual relationship. So then you go out and you look for someone and you chat them up at a bar or a cafe and then you have an orgasm and you realize, oh, it was a bit of a fleeting experience, wasn't it? No, there's more. There's more to relationships than just like sexual intimacy. Relationships are more than just sex. But how did you know that? You knew that because you realized in relationships that were just about sex, there was a lack of fulfillment. What fulfillment came was fleeting and transient and not at all lasting. And as a result, you look for a little more in relationships. And you realize it's not sex, it's, it's intimacy. And intimacy is beyond the physical. It's about intellectual intimacy. So I have to find someone uh, with whom I have a lot in common. So now I go to the bar or the cafe or whatever, and I'm not chatting people up to get them into bed. I'm chatting them up to get them into the bed of the mind. In other words, I want a partner, a companion, someone who understands me and who I understand, et cetera. And so you find someone, you fall in love and it's wonderful. Um, and you have this wonderful physical and, and emotional and intellectual intimacy. And then you find that even that is not lastingly fulfilling. You know, Even a great relationship that starts off in, in a heated romance with a lot of depth and meaning both intellectually and emotionally, even that alone is not sufficient to make one's life happy. Hmm? Sooner or later, if, if those two people don't find something uh, outside of their relationship, if they don't find something deeper than their relationship, if they've only lived thus far for that relationship, problems can arise. But you only know that through experience. Then you might say, okay, what about money? If I have this much money, I'll feel secure. I'll feel safe in the world. My parents never had enough. And so if I make the money, I will have what my parents never had, financial security. I will be able to give my kids what my parents never could give me, piano lessons or what have you. So you go out, you work your ass off for money and then you get it. And then you realize that it's never enough. The amount of money that you would have been happy with two years ago now disgusts you. Now your standards have changed and now $1,000 won't do it anymore. Now it's 100,000. And where you have 100,000 now, no, it's a billion. So the problem with money is that it never seems to be enough. And insofar as we're living for money, for financial security as the be-all, end-all of our life, we sooner or later, all of us come to realize that. Now take power. So there's pleasure, there's emotional intimacy and intellectual intimacy, then there's money and financial security. Now take power. Maybe what I'm looking for is not romance or pleasure. Maybe what I'm looking for is not wealth or financial security or acquisition. Maybe what I'm looking for is a sense of power, however gross or subtle. So maybe what I want is to actually conquer entire civilizations and be like the emperor or the fuhrer or something. Or maybe what I want is a subtle form of power in which people respect me or, or see me as like an authority in my field because of however many books I've written or however many PhDs I hold. So maybe I'm interested in learning why? Because interest, my interest is in power and I feel like learning can give me that power. You know, so I want as many PhDs or as many books as I can get. Wonderful. Do that. And then realize that even that is not enough. There's a lot of insecurity there too. You know, as long as there's power, there's always fear of losing it. The only, what uh, Emperor Palpatine says in the third Star Wars movie, the only thing that powerful people is, are afraid of is losing their power. <laughs> and to the point where they can't sleep at night. You know, they can't sleep at night because they're worried about who's coming for them and if their kid is going to be kidnapped from private school because they're so famous. I teach private school. I actually know some people who are very anxious because of how rich they are and how famous they are and how well-known they are. So they can't even go to their favorite restaurant or go to their um, bar down the street, which they used to frequent. And they can't even send their kids actually to like actual school. They have to send their kids to online school just because they get so many death threats. And it's, it's an anxious life. You know, but some people, when they pursue power, they'll realize that power doesn't scratch the itch. 
power in and of itself is not enough. And it's kind of giving us a lot of anxiety also. So as long as I'm looking for money, if I'm looking for pleasure, if I'm looking for power, I'm always going to come up short and be disappointed. So then I might try to live for like adventure or learning or growth or expansion. So I might become a world traveler, a cultural connoisseur. I want to now go to Spain and listen to flamenco music. I want to, you know, have this dish in Japan and I want to read all of these books and listen to all of this music. So I become like an esthete, a lover of beauty. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to live one's life. But the world is full of incredibly miserable artists who are top of their field and who are deep appreciators of culture and yet depressed and yet um, committing suicide in closets like Robin Williams, you know, like on all sorts of um, antidepressants and and narcotics of all sorts like you, you can see the the what you get from watching the lives of those who are at the top of their field whether in terms of power wealth pleasure or um uh, learning or even cultural or aesthetic achievement you'll see a lot of dissatisfaction far and wide but anyway don't look at other people you can the wise person often does that but one should just examine one's own experience how much has it done for us to pursue life externally motivated. In other words, how much satisfaction have we really got from pursuing satisfaction out there in the world? So here we can define worldliness in a very simple way. Worldliness is simply the orientation outward, um, or rather I should say, worldliness is simply the desire to find fulfillment or consummation in externals, in the things of the senses, whether it's pleasure, money, power, learning, cultural achievement, or whatever. So anything that the world offers, insofar as I'm looking for satisfaction in any of those things, um, that can be called worldliness. And worldliness, axiologically speaking, is self-defeating because anybody who's ever lived that way sooner or later comes to the conclusion that it just can't quite do it for us. So the best argument for renunciation is simply to look closely at one's own experience and ask the very honest question of, is it working for me? Like, is this actually doing it for me? Or do I want more? Do I want more out of life than just the various trinkets and baubles that have been dangled before me by my consumer culture? This is the axiological argument. And this argument cannot be made. One cannot learn this argument. One must only intuit it from the depths of one's, from the innermost recesses of one's being as a result of tasting everything in the world. So notice, there's no moralistic or cultural point against enjoyment. One should enjoy. One should go on into the world and taste everything there is to taste. One should acquire pleasure to one's heart's content. One should acquire wealth enough until one realizes that they will never be satisfied that way. One should have power to some degree. One should actualize themselves in whatever way they see best in this world. You know, they should acquire learning and go on adventures and have a cultural aesthetic experiences and savor art of all sorts. All of that needs to happen first. And then comes what the Buddhists call divine dispassion. That deep, deep poignant moment when one realizes there must be more to life than what I've previously considered the be all end all of my life. You know, and that's when spirituality arguably starts. So this is an argument from the point of view of axiology or, or, or values or meaning. So a person eventually arises eventually alights upon or in that person arises this desire to go beyond the world. And that's when spirituality becomes important and interesting. So that's the first argument. If one examines one's own experiences here in the world and asks the question, am I getting out of this what I wanted to get out of this? One will invariably and inevitably sooner or later come to the conclusion, no. <laughs>
<laughs> it's not quite enough. And of course, you can do it by studying, as I've often said before, biographies of great like musicians and painters and you know wealthy business people. And you can, of course, study biographies and see it that way. But it's much better to experience it in the light of one's own firsthand experience. You know, it's much better to look at your own life and ask the question if these things really, really matter as much as you thought they would. Because they did at one point right? Like all these things did seem so valuable. You needed to get them only to realize that you never really needed them or nor did they really have that much value now. So that's the first argument, the argument from axiology. And it's not really an argument that can be made. It's one that simply must be felt, though it is helpful to point out sometimes. I think we all value the reminder to kind of look carefully at our lives and ask this question, am I fulfilled? And are these things fulfilling me? Because they promise to and yet they don't. Beyond that fleeting momentary experience, is there really that lasting fulfillment that I somehow deep down inside sense that I deserve? So that's why I think a lot of the people that the Christ and the Buddha met were willing to simply up and leave and follow them um, when they invited them to spiritual life. So I point to these two um, verses that I really love. One is from Matthew, I think Matthew is one of my favorite in the New Testament. It's 8.22. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. So in this scene, Jesus, he's like walking through a town or whatever, and someone is in the midst of a funeral. So they're like doing the final rites for their loved one. And the Christ is walking by and he says to this person, let the dead bury their dead or, or let, the, let the dead mourn their dead. Basically, he's saying, let the worldly people continue to perish in their worldliness. You follow me. Now, the Christ is inviting someone to leave behind the world and all that they considered important and serious there to just come with him into what? Into spirituality, out into the desert for a spiritual adventure. So the Christ is saying, let the dead bury their dead, follow me. That person did. That person left mid-funeral. He just looked at the Christ and he was like, all right, I guess this is my life now. And he straight up walked out of the funeral and followed Christ and became one of his disciples. In another instance, the Christ meets a man who I think is plowing a field He's doing some farm work and maybe trying to like raise a family or make some money or something. I imagine the Christ casts one glance at all of this and he says, let's go, put down the plow and let's go. And and then he makes a comparison between like spiritual life as the plow. And he says, um, whoever puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Meaning whoever like looks back at their worldly life or who they thought they were or what they thought was really important after they've set their minds to doing spiritual life, that person, you know, won't make it. So basically again, the Christ is saying like, leave it all behind. Just drop the hoe, the plow there in the farm and follow me. Put your hand on the plow of spiritual life. Choose me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, like that rhetoric you get from the Christ. Now, the Buddha, similarly, he would come to villages. Like he was like a bit of a rock star. He was on this like lecture tour and he would go from village to village kind of speaking about the Dharma. He was turning the wheel of the Dharma and talking about birth is suffering, life is suffering, death is suffering, rebirth is suffering. Um, the only way out of suffering is to recognize that there was no one there in the first place to suffer. Uh, he's giving these lectures and people heard in that uh, you an opportunity to actually have a more valuable life. And so then they decided they would just follow him. And many of these people who were in the midst of their worldly lives just kind of put everything down and became monastics. Now, lest you think I'm making a case that we should all renounce and uh, become monastics, uh, I'm not actually making that case because a lot of monastics haven't renounced. 
you know, they're monastics, but they're still full of attachments inside. So I'm not saying you should all become monks or nuns, some of you, certainly. And many people who came across the Christ and the Buddha um, did certainly do that. But I think what's maybe being referenced here is something more internal, something more metaphorical. So the Christ here is the metaphorical spiritual call. Many are called, very few answer. The call to live exclusively for that which is most sacred to you. That call comes in the midst of a funeral, in the midst of your work. And you might be tempted to ignore it. It'll keep coming with increasing urgency and increasing intensity the more you ignore it. And, you know, one day it will go quiet when you become really absorbed in the world. But then the suffering of the world itself will break your heart. And in that breaking, there will come that voice again. So it just, the call keeps coming. It's like a telemarketer who just won't give up the call to live for something more than all of this. And it will come in the midst of a funeral, in the midst of your work out in the farm. Now to answer the call is to follow Jesus, meaning to follow the call to spirituality is to walk with the Buddha out of the village and into the pine grove where the other monastics are hanging out, right? And when you walk out with the Buddha, it doesn't literally mean go find a monastery. It doesn't literally mean become a nun today. That's not really what I'm saying. And hopefully that will be clear towards the end of the lecture. But I'm just going to kind of say that here, just in case you thought what I was actually saying was actually become a monk. No, I'm not saying that. So anyway, now um, these two parables of, not parables, but these two episodes in, in Jesus' life, very interesting how he would just say to people, come, Let's go this way. And they would. They would just drop everything and go. And uh, there's a case of, for instance, all of Jesus' core disciples. He just kind of met them on the way. And one of them was fishing. And he would say to him, come, I will make ye a fisher of men. And he literally leaves the, the net on the floor and walks with the Christ. They're willing to just drop everything and go with the Christ. Why? Why were they so ripe to fall from the tree like that? Why were they so willing to simply answer the call of the Spirit? Firstly, I'm going to say the first reason here is because they already knew the limits of worldly life. They could already sense the dissatisfaction that comes from pursuing pleasure, wealth. At the funeral, maybe they realize, you know, funerals are very good for spirituality. You realize how, um, how immaterial, I guess, transient the body is. And the grief is good. The grief when you realize everyone you love will leave you. You realize, well, everyone is dying and I will soon die. Like, isn't there an urgency then in spiritual life, what is all of this for? What, what is the meaning of all of this? That question often arises in funerals. So the Christ, I think, is a bit of an opportunist. Opportunist. He went to that funeral and said to the person, let the dead bury their dead, thereby implying that death is more than just dying. It's also being in the world and not awakening to eternal life. Let the dead bury their dead. And this person who at that funeral heard that message was ripe for it. They had the ears to hear and they were able to say, yeah, I see what you're saying. I see that if I continue my life the way I've been living it, pursuing all these things that maybe have the kind of veneer of being noble and, and, and worthwhile, then I'm going to be like these other people dead. Either when I actually literally die or just when I go to work every day and don't have that life and that juice in me anymore, I'd be walking dead. You know? I'll, I'll be in season 12 of walking dead or something like that. So he just knew he was ready. He was ready to hear the message because he had acquired education through experience, through carefully considering his experience. And I think Socrates, Plato would famously quote him saying, um, the unexamined life is not worth living. So if you're not examining your experiences and asking tough questions about them, you're as good as dead. You're unconsciously moving through life. 
or I, I, to be technical, unconscientiously, just plowing through life, you know? But if you take the time to ask the question of, am I truly deriving satisfaction from these things? Or are they just making me anxious? Am I just doing them because my parents conditioned me to do them or my culture conditioned me to do them? Are they actually bringing me joy? True lasting fulfillment. Is it really that worthwhile for me to increase followers, increase money, increase pleasure? Am I, am I really getting fulfillment? If you ask that question and you look carefully at your experience, then when you meet the Christ who says, come this way, we're going towards God, you'll be ready for that message because you would have come to the same conclusion yourself. You just needed the prompting and then you can easily go. So that's the first argument. The first reason you should renounce is because it's an obvious conclusion that comes from studying one's own experiences in the world and thereby coming to the conclusion that they're not as fulfilling as they promised themselves out to be. Okay, that's the first thing. Now, the second argument, the second argument is still axiological, but it's the opposite argument in the sense that the first argument relies on distaste and dissatisfaction. Basically, the first argument is a neti neti, not this, not this type of argument. By realizing what's not the way, I can intuit what is the way. So I have to kind of interact with the world and, and be able to say that ain't it, sis, to be able to actually start looking for what is. But notice, it's not that these people came to these conclusions and then went off to the mountains. They had to also meet a great master like Jesus. You know, so they had to meet Buddha. They had to meet Ramakrishna. Now, a lot of the direct disciples of Ramakrishna would say that um, when they were in his presence, the things that seemed so real only a few moments ago in the world stopped feeling so real. All those problems that were so problematic, I guess, only a few moments ago across the river, now weren't that problematic. The moment they got off the boat from Calcutta and they made the trek to the Dakshineshwar temple and they were in the presence of the master, all of those things just faded away. They just ceased to be a big deal anymore. So those things that seemed so real in the world now weren't. And then conversely, those things that seemed so fake in the world, like God, like ecstasy, like samadhi, like all these things that in the world seemed fictional fairy tale stories, all those things suddenly felt real. In the presence of Sri Ramakrishna, they saw as, as an embodied master, they saw in him um, spirituality in full bloom. He would often just go into samadhi all throughout the day. He would be in states like samadhi, kind of partial consciousness. He would dance a lot, sometimes gently, sometimes with the vigor of a lion as M reports. He was always dancing and often singing. Every now and then he would break into devotional song that, as M reports, would melt the heart of a stone, like so heart melting kind of devotion, you know? Um, and he was always engaged in serving others and talking to them. You could feel the palpable love that emanated from him for everyone, regardless of who they were, how old they were, what caste they were, what gender they were. He was uh, unabashedly inclusive of all beings. And he himself was always smiling and laughing. So when you see in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, um, the beginning of each episode, usually you'll see he's like sitting and smiling. You know, he's always in a good mood. And um, often you'll see throughout the Gospel, as many people point out, there's all laugh or laughter or something. Everyone's like laughing often. It's a fun time. You think that being in the presence of the Buddha and Jesus might have been solemn, but no. If, if we can see with Sri Ramakrishna, it wasn't solemn. It was funny. It was funny to be among those people. It was funny in not like a frivolous kind of shooting the shit way, but it was funny in like a deep existential way. And I don't know, in some sense, you could feel the fulfillment in them. And so those of us who have had the chance to meet real masters in our life, it's a true blessing because you see spirituality is real because you see it in their face. Like I've often 
said, quoting, sort of paraphrasing Swami Ashokananda, uh, you, proof of God's existence is the eyes of those who love God. Who cares if God exists? I don't care if God exists or not. Because I've seen the God intoxicated men and women of, of my life, you know? So to me, I know God exists because I see it in their eyes. I, I don't care if God actually exists, actually. You know, because I met those people. And uh, I also, in my own life now, anecdotally, feel uh, God's existence as my own joy, as my own palpable feeling of love in my heart. So what do I care about the Vedas and heavens and all that? Maybe God doesn't exist. I don't care. I don't care at all if God doesn't exist because God is love and the palpable love that has arisen in my heart as a result of seeing these masters. That cannot be questioned. It's a part of my own experience. So Sri Ramakrishna was so in love with God. His whole life was saturated with God consciousness. And he would often talk to God. He would see Makali and have conversations with her and all forms of God. He saw Jesus and, and all of that. And so people would often say, how do you know these aren't hallucinations? Swami Vivekananda, young Narendranath at the time, was foremost amongst these critics. And they would criticize him. They would say, these are all just hallucinations. And it didn't really matter to Sri Ramakrishna. Of course, from time to time, he would be upset. But it didn't really matter to him because he was having firsthand experiences of Makali. And he would, he would say to her, you know, like, why does Narayan abuse you? Why does, you know, like stuff like that. But anyway, he didn't mind that people thought he was crazy. And once he was asked about that, he said, people asked him, why, why don't you mind that, you know, people think you're hallucinating and that you're crazy, you're having nervous breakdowns or whatever. And then his response was simply to say, see, everyone is crazy. Some people are crazy for money, some for sex, some for power. I'm crazy for God. What's the big deal? He was putting, in, in some sense, he was putting himself on par with all the other crazy people in the world. But here's the difference. This is the key difference. The craziness of worldly people is dissatisfactory. The craziness of Sri Ramakrishna, Jesus, Buddha, at least from what you could see, was fulfillment. It was indubitable, the joy that they felt. And so then you might end up, by virtue of meeting these people, you might end up saying, I want what they're having. Like, I'm mad, but I'm mad for the wrong things. I want to be mad for what they're mad for. <laughs> I want to be mad about God. Because they are, and look how they're living. Hmm? So the proof of God's existence, the proof of any of this, is just meeting masters. And uh, the thing about these people in the stories of Jesus and Buddha and Ramakrishna is that they got to meet those people. They got to meet Buddha and Jesus and Ramakrishna. So I'm making this axiological point for renunciation and it's two-pronged. On one level, axiologically speaking, renunciation becomes the obvious choice when one investigates one's own experience and one's lack of fulfillment. Then secondly, the second reason you should renounce is because it's the obvious choice when one compares one's experience and one's own state with that of those masters. Even if we're just reading about them, we sense even from reading about them from 2,500 years distance or 2,000 years distance, we sense just from reading about them, the joy and the possibility inherent in human life. You know? So those two reasons from an axiological point of view, why we ought to renounce. Okay. Now, from an epistemological point of view, and we can make this argument rather briefly, so don't worry. The axiological point I wanted to spend the most time on, you know, because it appeals to the heart. Now, the epistemological point appeals to the mind. So let's make a more rational argument, one less based on anecdotes and one based more on here and now reason. Because maybe you haven't yet, right, deduced that the world won't fulfill you. See, the first part of this lecture is targeted towards those people who have the ears to hear. You might hear it. You might be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I've lived in this world and pursued pleasure in it and power in it and wealth in it. And I was right to look for happiness. I just looked for it in the wrong places. So you'll hear it and you'll be like, yeah, okay. Renunciation is the obvious choice. And then you'll consider in contrast the lives of Ramakrishna, Buddha, Jesus. You'll say, 
I want that. Okay, so that, that was the first part of the lecture. It's targeted towards a specific group of people. Now, the second part of the lecture, let's just put all these anecdotes aside. Okay, all anecdotes and axiological arguments aside, let's just look at it in the most rational, direct and immediate way. Here and now, we can come to the conclusion that renunciation is the only rational choice. Here's how. I should hedge my bets, my bets with what I know and not with what I don't know. So let's say I'm betting on a horse race, okay? And there are a few horses. Now, I know for a fact that one of the five horses that are going to be, I don't actually know how many horses are in a race. I've never bet on a horse race. But let's say there are five horses about to race. And I know for a fact that one of those horses is fast, like really fast. I know that. But I don't know that the other four are. I actually don't know anything about those other four. Which horse should I bet on? I don't know about those four. Remember, I have no, no knowledge about them whatsoever. And in principle, let's just say it's impossible for me to get knowledge about them because maybe it's time for me to hedge, like put my bet in or something like that. Okay, so I, I'm at the counter and I don't, I don't actually know how this whole horse betting thing works, but I'm at the counter and I have to decide which horse I'm going to bet on. And uh, I, I can't, there's no time left for me to know anything about those other four horses. But I do know though, from previous experience, from current experience, I could argue that this one horse that, you know, I know of is the fastest. So what am I going to bet on? Now, if you say bet on the other four horses, I'll say you're an idiot. It's just irrational. It's irrational. It's irrational to bet on those other four horses. Remember, now I'm going to make an argument based on rationality, on probabilities, on intellect, okay? So I'm not making an axiological point. I'm making a rational point. Any probability theorist or any, I guess, intellectual kind of leaning person would say it would be irrational, absolutely irrational to bet on the horses I don't know. In fact, you even hear that phrase, better the devil you know, right? There are two problems in your life. You actually prefer the one that you know about because better the devil you know. All of these phrases show you that you should bet on what you know, on what you're sure of. So let me say, if you're doing a multiple choice question and there are four answers, you know the answer is B. Why would you choose A, C, and D? It would be irrational of you to choose A, C, and D. Okay, so the principle is this. You should hedge your bets on that which you know, on that which you're certain of. You should never bet on or count on that which you don't know and are uncertain of. So far, so good. Fair, right? I think this is fair. This, I don't think this is an affront to anyone's like basic sense of rationality. We should bet on what we know. Okay. What do you know? You know for a fact that you are, that you exist. Your existence is the indubitable fact in life. You know, because whatever you've doubted, you've only been able to doubt because you exist. There must exist a doubter for doubt to arise at all. Now, obviously, this is the great conclusion of Descartes, the father of modern science, who in his meditations asked the question, what do I actually know? And he, he embarked on this wonderful inquiry a wonderful skeptical inquiry into knowledge, epistemological quest. And he, he asked these questions like, can I trust what my senses report to me? I mean, I've been wrong before. I've seen sticks bent in the water um, and clearly they weren't bent sticks. They were straight sticks, yet they appear to me to be bent. I've seen mirages. I've been wrong before. My ears, eyes, mouth, skin, all of these sense organs have reported falsely to me before. So I can't be sure of what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing or what I'm smelling or what I'm tasting. Can I even be sure that I am in a world like 
an actual world, or maybe this is all just conjured up by some demon or something. You know, he basically he was like kind of intuiting arguments from the Mandukya Upanishad. The idea that this could all just be a dream. And we've had lectures before questioning the ontological like certainty that we have that this waking is not a dream, you know? So anyway, he goes on this quest and he comes to a very important conclusion, a conclusion that we feel from the Upanishadic tradition, he kind of didn't understand. And the conclusion that he came to was this. The only thing I can be sure of is that I exist. The reason I can doubt anything at all is because the doubter might exist. So everything is up for doubt. Everything, what my senses report, what my mind reports, what I take to be real, all of that can be doubted. But the one thing that cannot be doubted is the doubter, the one to whom doubt arises. That's the only indubitable fact of my my being. My being is the indubitable fact. Everything else is, you know, shady. (laughs) That was Descartes' conclusion in Meditations. Now let's arrive at that same conclusion through the route of Sankhya. So take a Sankhyan argument. Now Sankhya says there is Prakriti out there maybe, but there's no way at all for me to interact with Prakriti as it is. The best I can do is interact with a representation of Prakriti as it appears in my mind. So the mind of course is part of Prakriti. Mind is Prakriti as well. But here, like we'll just take a kind of um, step-by-step view at the process of cognition. So let's say there's a table, you know, and I'm looking at a table or maybe I'll just take this teacup. This is better. There's a teacup. So you can see the teacup and I'm looking at the teacup. Now, as we've said before, no part of the teacup is actually entering my eye. As we've said before, it would be disastrous for even a tiny particle of the teacup to go into my eye. That would damage the retina. So it's not the teacup per se that's entering my eye. At best, it's light formless light. Light is pouring into the retina, making some kind of impression on the retinal wall. And through a series of electrical and chemical responses, there arises in the mind an image which the intellect labels as cup. So I asked, and this is a very important question to ask, where is the cup? In your experience, where is the cup? And many are tempted to say out there as part of this real world, but no. You don't have access to the real world. At best, it's light. And all you have access to is your representation of that real world in the mind as conjured up by the intellect through its use of labels and through its comparison to previous experiences through memory and conditioning. So the whole world, as you experience it, is not a physical reality out there, but is rather a thought being represented within the mind. So all of reality is really represented in the mind. So there's no way and we can debate about this in the Q&A, there's no real way, at least in principle, of evaluating what the world is, ontologically speaking. You can only kind of ask what my mind is conjuring up for me as the world. So you can only interact with the representation of the world, not the world itself. As we've said in previous classes, the world that you see in your head might not be the world that's actually there. And in principle, there's no real way of valid, verifying the actual world, even if there is one. All you can do is work with your mental constructs. And we know how fraught those are. A little bit of conditioning can cause me to see something in a wholly new way. Something that I previously saw in this way, I can see in this way. We know how uh, absolutely tenuous the mental models of reality can be because they can change. As emotional textures change, physical reality changes too. Colors pop when I'm happy. Colors become dull when I'm sad. When I'm feeling good, I'm charitable and I see the best in others. When I'm feeling crabby, then I'm the opposite. I see the worst in others. And if I, you know, 
feel angry, I will look out and see a world full of anger. I'll look at the news and see all these horrible things happening. Whereas if I feel happy, I'll encounter things that justify that happiness. I'll see a world full of joy and kindness and peace. And it's crazy how much the external world and its representation depend on my internal state. And given that, given that I can see the tremendous variance in the presentation of the world in my mind, I have reason to doubt it, right? I, I, cannot, I cannot even in principle val- verify that it's there beyond my mental representation. And even if it was there, I can never verify what it actually looks like beyond my mental representation. And the mental representation itself is fraught and subject to change as I move through life. That's obvious to me. So why then should I live for the world? The world here being defined in a very deep metaphysical way as that which appears in my mind, as an object. Anything that appears in my mind as an object is suspect is highly suspect. The only thing that's not suspect is the subject. The subject, the one to whom and in whom the object appears. So now my question is this, which horse do you bet on? (laughs) Should you live a life in the world looking for objects when you don't even know those objects are there? Or should you live a life premised upon the subject? Now my question is, what kind of life is a life premised upon the subject? Surprise, surprise, a spiritual one. All spirituality is about finding the subject or realizing that you are the subject. You know, so they call it God in some traditions. This subject, this no self is called, I mean, this no thing is called God. In other traditions, it's called void. In some traditions, it's called self. Who cares what it's called? It's the same thing. It's the subject, you know, the subject, the one in whom, and maybe you could say even to whom these things arise. So therefore, I ought to hedge my bets with that which I'm sure of, meaning I should prioritize meditation. I should prioritize studying about the self, scriptures and texts that talk about the self, coming to lectures about Upanishadic ideas. The entirety of the Upanishads is devoted to the self. All of Buddhism is devoted to the self, though they'll call it the no self. Then all of the Bible and all of the Quran and all of the Torah is devoted to the self, though they'll call it God or whatever else, you know, you call it Ein Sof Aur. Uh, Ein Sof Aur or Yetzira, uh, not sorry, not Yetzira. You call it Elahi or Ein Sof Aur or um, Yahweh or Shaddai El Kai or you know, in the Bible you get all sorts of different names for God, all these different kind of Hebrew formulations of God. They all just mean the same being, um, and that being the Upanishads calls Atman or Brahman. That being the Buddhists call Void or the clear light, of, clear light of the void, according to the Prasangika Madhyamakas. What you call it doesn't matter. The important thing is is that it's not an object. It's often set apart from all the other objects in the world. So in some sense, in order to find the subject that, I mean, that's kind of a contradiction in terms, you can't find the subject as if it was one of the objects that you can otherwise find. But in order to be the subject, to commune with the subject, you have to, for a time, step apart and aside and away from the objects. That's natural. It's natural in philosophy, but it ought to reflect also in one's life. So you have to kind of pull back from all the objects in the world to become aware of the subject in whom these objects are arising. So this is an epistemological point, by the way, um, that I don't know anything about objects. I cannot know anything about objects, but I do know about the knower. That's the only indubitable fact of my existence. So I ought to hedge my bets with that, meaning I should prioritize spirituality. It's the safest thing that I could do. You know how they say uh, not taking risk is the riskiest thing you can do? I would say not devoting all of your time, literally all of your time to spirituality is the riskiest thing you can do because you're giving time and energy to that which you don't even know exists. (laughs) Don't bet on horses you don't know about. Okay, that's what I'll say. Okay, now third and final argument and we can close on this is um, a metaphysical point. So why is it that people like Jesus and Buddha and all are so happy? 
What is it about those people? Like, why is it that those people I spoke about earlier, those great masters and saints and mystics, why do they seem to be beaming and full of joy and life and light? Why do they seem to be so uh, full of service, so loving and helpful? Well, we can ask the question and we can find that the answer is almost always because they chose to take a stand in the spirit. They chose to live their life for God, if, I mean, you're the, the theist, or they chose to live for the self, if you're like an Upanishadic Rishi, or they chose to live for the no self, if they're a Buddhist. And all of them, they basically just chose to live for the subject, not the objects of the world, not for pleasure, not for money, not for power, not for adventure, none of those things. They, they lived for spirit and they acted from that place. So the Christ didn't act like a man. He wasn't a man, I don't think. He was just pure spirit. So he flowed around the world like a fragrant breeze, you know, untethered to anything. The Buddha wandered about alone like a rhinoceros, as it says in one poem, just so free. He was like a lotus leaf. Water could not cling to him. You know, he was like uh, just so ethereal of a being because he didn't feel like a body. He didn't react like a mind. So neither, neither the Christ, the Christ didn't react like a body or react like a mind. They lived from spirit. They lived in spirit and they acted from spirit, whatever, you know, spirit, subject, self, whatever. And thereby we could, they were happy. So we have to ask the question, what made them happy? They were living from spirit. Then we ask the question, why are we not that happy? Because we live as a body and we live as a mind. Stan, we have to ask, what am I? And that's where the metaphysical question comes in. What is and what am I? So I know that the whole world that I see around me, it's suspect. The world is suspect. I can't interact with it. I don't know what it is exactly. I just see a stream of change coming and going. But I do know this. Without me, there would not be this world. In other words, if I don't experience it, there would not be an experience. An experience presupposes an experiencer. So me, this person that I feel that I am, that seems to be fundamental. So before I can even have a conversation about metaphysics, I have to acknowledge the one that indubitably exists. The one who is having this discussion. The one who is thinking about metaphysics. So that one, I have to ask the question, what is that one? So then I ask, is it any of these things in the world? And I look around and I obviously say, no, it can't be any of these things in the world. Then I ask, is it this body? And then slightly harder task, but I'm also able to see that it's not this body for reasons that we've previously spelled out in different classes. You know, you can easily see that because the body is an object in my experience, it's not me, the one who is experiencing the body is something that I am experiencing as a stream of sensations coming one after another. I stand somewhere behind and apart from that. And then I ask, okay, well, then am I, am I a mind? And this is the hardest thing for most of us to see that we're not the mind. There were actually something beyond the mind that is able to watch the thoughts one after another come and go. So I'm able to take this vantage point where I can see the mind, I can see the body, and I can see the world. And from that vantage point, it becomes quite clear the metaphysics of it all. It's clear that I am not the mind. I am not the body. I am not the world. So I am something wholly other than what I previously thought I was. Just a little bit of careful inquiry will reveal to me here and now in the light of my reasoning that I'm not the objects of my experience, including the mind and the body and the world. I am the subject, ever the subject, the witness. And as such, how can I, the witness, which is categorically different from the body and mind, find any fulfillment from the point of view of the body and mind? How can I, the witness, expect to be satisfied in the way the body is satisfied? The body is satisfied with pleasure. If I was the body, I would be satisfied with pleasure. But clearly, in the light of my own reason here and now, once I see that I'm not the body, I should come to the conclusion that nothing that satisfies the body will really satisfy me. And what satisfies me doesn't necessarily satisfy the body because I am not the body. 
the body wants sex, but I'm not the body. So obviously then if I pursue sex, I'm not going to be happy because I'm not the body. And if I get sex, I'm not happy. Body is happy, but I'm not happy. I must not be the body. It's like simple logic like that, you know? So that's why I ought to give that up. Why ought I give that up? Because it doesn't even apply to me in the first place. I'm not the sort of thing that can be fulfilled through pleasure. Bodies maybe, but I'm not a body. Then you could say mind, right? Like the mind could be fulfilled through praise, through, I don't know, uh, through feeling like my work matters or any other kind of ego sort of reward. And then if I look and I say, well, what is the ego? Again, I startlingly, I discovered that it's an object of my experience. It's something that I'm aware of, you know, like the body. It's not me. It's, it's an experience occurring to me. And that's suddenly a flash of insight. That, that's why I can't be happy with ego things. Just if I have more followers or more rewarding sense of like I've done more work or more people give me compliments, why am I not happy? I'm momentarily happy, but I'm not happy. Why not? Because that makes the mind happy. But because I'm not the mind, it doesn't make me happy. That's a kind of startling conclusion that we can come to. Is if I understand here and now that I am the subject and not the objects, if I understand that the body and mind are both objects, then it gives me a clear account for why I'm not happy when I live as a body and mind. But if I live as spirit, and what does it mean to live as spirit? Just to commune, just to be, you know, arguably, just to be. And uh, you could say there are four ways to live as spirit. One is to selflessly, selflessly serve others as an act of worship. The other is to pray. And we'll talk a lot about that in next week's lecture. And the third is to contemplate the spirit, to dwell upon it, to meditate on it. The fourth is to simply be it, to close one's eyes and be absorbed in pure being and just resting in one's awareness. These are ways to be as a spirit. Basically, I know you can sense karma yoga, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, raja yoga. These are ways to live spiritually, to live as a spirit. So think of it this way. The more of the day, like if the day was a pie chart, the more of the day I live as a spirit and the less of the day I live as a body and mind, the happier I will be. You know what fulfillment looks like? It's a pie chart with virtually no body and mind. It's a pie chart of pure spirit. And you know what unfulfillment looks like? A pie chart of living just like a body and mind, like a hedonist looking for pleasure as an ego, as a physical being. That's what hell looks like. What heaven looks like is simply dropping all of that. This is a metaphysical point. The point we're making is asking the question, well, what am I? Realizing that I'm not the body and mind and then realizing why those other two points mattered. You know, why those people who are happy are happy and why those people who aren't happy aren't happy. It's all about what they think they are. If you think you're a body and mind, you suffer. If you think you are a spirit, you're happy. It's as simple as that. Now, let's close all of this. If the purpose of life is happiness, and it is, the Upanishads, the Vedas, boldly declare that the reason for life is happiness. By the way, the purpose of life is not renunciation. And also the purpose of life is not religion. The purpose of life is not even to worship God. Okay, the purpose of life is happiness. The purpose of life is fulfillment, is meaning. If that is true, if the purpose of life is happiness, if you accept that as your great calling, that you're here to be happy, actually not a lot of people realize they're here to be happy. If they really think about it, everything they do is to be happy. But you have to admit it. You have to admit that the reason I'm here is because I'm trying to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. And it's wonderful to want that. It's right to want that. So if that's true, if you can admit that I want to be happy, then you have to concede these five arguments. And the first is trying to be happy by pursuing pleasure, money, power, and other rewards of the ego don't make me happy. And that's one reason to stop doing that. Secondly, when I do meet people who are truly happy, 
and I have to really test them like a money lender tests coins. Then I see that those people are happy uh, because they aren't living from the point of view of being a body and mind, but living from the point of view of being a spiritual being. Then thirdly, I have to consider that the reason I'm not happy is because I've hedged my bets on those things that I'm not sure of. You know, those things that come and go that I can't verify or validate. I should be hedging my bets on that which I am certain of. Then fourthly, I should recognize that I am not one, uh, not what I thought I was. I'm not a body. I'm not a mind. So metaphysically, once I come to the realization that I'm a spirit, again, I have to concede that I cannot become happy living as something I'm not. It's like trying to be, trying to get all your nutrition from eating dog food when you're not a dog. You know, dog food is good for dogs, but you should know if you're not a dog, not to eat dog food. But if you don't know you're not a dog, you'll eat dog food and it won't meet your nutrition needs. Whose fault is that? Similarly, if I know I'm not a body and mind and I continue to live like one and I'm not happy, whose fault is that? I just didn't do a proper metaphysical, epistemological, or axiological study of life. And the final conclusion I'll make is this. The fifth reason to renounce is this. Because Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, Ramakrishna, they all thought it. I mean, I feel like this is an argument from the point of view of corroboration. Like if, I, if in my own life, I'm not able to see that renunciation is valuable, I should at least be able to admit that from doing a comparative study of all the world's major religions, I should be able to admit that they've all come upon one corroborated fact, that religion at its heart is renunciation. Wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. So if I'm able to see that corroboration, that should lend some credence to renunciation as valuable. You know, Swami Vivekananda would pace up and down in the Thousand Islands Park where he gave lectures to his core disciples. And he actually saw that as his best work. He would tell people that uh, he he peaked, he would argue at that time, you know. So he would pace up and down. He'd say, celibacy, don't you see there must be something to it? All the great world religions stress it. Don't you think there must be something to it? Because he knew American disciples would always resist something like that. But he was saying, don't you think there must be something to it? Okay, so now we've taken a really kind of jarring and high tone, right? You should renounce everything for God. So does that mean you become a monk or a nun? For some of you, yes. Maybe. Maybe that is what it means, right? Maybe you feel inspired by this discussion to take up monastic life. Do it. Why not? You know, live for God. Um, Now, those of you who aren't taking up monastic life, take up monastic life internally. Live for God. Do it. The true renunciation is an internal renunciation. And what does that look like? Maybe kind of practical point. It looks like this. The moment this lecture ends, watch carefully what you'll do next. And then watch carefully what you'll do after that. And then watch carefully what you'll do after that. And then watch carefully what you'll do after that. And then watch carefully what you'll do after that. In other words, watch every single hour that ticks by on the clock and ask yourself this question. What did I use this hour for? Did I use it? to satisfy the body and mind and live like a worldling? Or did I use it as a spiritual practitioner endeavoring to commune with that which I already am, the self? That's all you have to do. And if you find that you're living as a body and mind, then I say to you, stop it. Cut it out. Stop it right now. Why? Give it up. You know you know, in the depth of your being that it's futile. None of these things that matter to you now will matter on the deathbed. So give them up now. Save yourself time, save yourself heartache, and determine now from this point on to devote the rest of your life, every single minute of it, to spirituality, which could look like studying spiritual texts exclusively, uh, texts written by masters of every tradition. It can look like refusing to engage with any content that does not inspire you spiritually, which could mean 
you stop scrolling or at least make sure your feed is spiritually aligned. It could mean stop watching TV that doesn't inspire you spiritually. Basically, it means drop all entertainment, right? Just drop entertainment. You don't need it anymore. You're interested now in education, in spirituality. Kind of crazy to say that. Um, but you should come to that conclusion as a result of the discussion we just had. So in other words, saying, I just won't consume content that doesn't inspire me spiritually. Saying, I won't do anything that doesn't contribute to my spiritual life. In other words, I should spend all my time studying text. I should spend all my time meditating. And I should spend all my time cultivating prayer. But then what about work? Well, I have to spiritualize that too. I have to turn all my work into karma yoga. In other words, I have to stop working in order to make money, in order to like climb the corporate ladder, in order to provide for my family because I feel like, you know, they need me. No, rather, I should redefine all of that. The reason I provide for my family is not because they need me, but because they are God incarnate, giving me a chance to do puja to them uh, by making enough money for rent like that. So it's not that you have to quit your job, though. If you do want to do that, you can always, the option is always there. You can. Everybody feels so trapped in their life. You're not. You can just walk with the Christ. You can just go, you drop your net, drop your uh, plow, walk right out of the funeral. You can do anything you want in this life. It's your life. All the conditions that inhibit you from living that life are wholly imagined. You know, so um, you could if you wanted, but you don't have to because that's not the point. The point is something far subtler and far deeper than I think one could communicate in this discussion. And it, it's, it's more about an internal attitude towards life, an internal orientation that says, I am a yogi, not a person, right? An internal attitude that says, I am not an individual in society trying to live the good life. I am a being who is interested in, in drowning all notion of worldliness, self, self-centeredness, ego, egocentric nature. I'm interested in dropping all of that and becoming what I always was. So that's the important thing. One's orientation to life is what's being called into question here. Not actually where one lives or what one wears or what one actually does, but how internally one feels about all of it. So the call of the Christ, the Christ's central message, arguably, is a message of renunciation. And hopefully, we've made a case as to why. And I think we'll stop there. Next week, we'll pick up the yoga of the Christ, the various practices that one does. Having Oh, by the way, this is it's supposed to be kind of a series in, in terms of it's, it's sequential, right? So level one was to argue why you should live just for spirituality. Just kind of making a claim why you should devote your whole life to spirituality. Argument two, which is the next lecture, will be now what do you do? Now that you've decided to like follow the Christ, you know, you've put down your net you've walked out of the funeral, you've dropped the plow. Now that you've decided to go with the Christ, you should ask the next question. So like, now what do I do? What do I, what do I do? How do I spend my time? That's what the next lecture will be about. And the third lecture will be about surrender, prayer, you know? Okay. So thank you all. I hope you enjoyed. Let's go to the Q&A and fight a little bit. I hope you will argue with me and, you know, we'll have a little, we'll hash it out and I'll die on the hill of renunciation. So let's, let's try that. <laughs> thank you all so much. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, as thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Christ. O Mary, Mother of God, pray for us, now and at the hour of our death. We pray to you, Mother. We throw ourselves upon thy mercy. We take refuge at thy hallowed feet. Mother, I do not want bodily comforts. I do not crave name and fame. I do not seek even the eight occult powers. I am finished with these trifles, these trinkets and baubles. I have thrown aside my toys 
and now I'm crying out, Mother, Mother, grant only, Mother, that I may have pure love for Thee, a love unsmitten by selfishness, untainted by any desires, a love craved by the devotee for the sake of love alone, a love that represents the highest culmination of a human life, a love that is the sublimation of all my emotions into their most refined and ecstatic state. I ask only for that love that would make me mad. Oh, mother, make me mad with thy love. Oh, mother, there is nobody in this world that I may call my own but thee. All of this is your play, and so I ask you for this favor. May I never be deluded by thy world-bewildering maya. May I never be attached to lust and greed, conjured up by thy maya, which time and time again have obscured from me my true nature. O oh, mother, there is no one in this world that I may call my own but thee. May I live exclusively for thee. May my mind be rendered wholly unto thee. May my mind think of nothing else but thee. May my mouth speak only of thee. May my ears hear only of thee. May my eyes see only thee and recognize thee in all that I see. May I touch only that sublime state of devotion. May I be absorbed in thee, mother. Drown me, mother. Drown me in thy love, now and forever. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rappanamastu